0: again? (laughs) Go ahead and grab your Bibles at this time, if you have them, and uh, turn with me to the book of Genesis. We will be beginning uh, in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, and uh, we will be focusing in on verse 24. Genesis 2, verses 21 through 24. There we go. And now I will be opening in my Bible to Genesis 2. Let's begin my reading, Genesis 2, verses 21 through 25. If you'd read that along with me, please. Genesis 2, starting in verse 21, says this, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then verse 24 is where we're going to focus our efforts this morning. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Would you pray with me this morning, please? Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would send your Spirit to open our eyes to this truth, this foundational passage on sexuality, marriage, sex, and all that you have intended for us, made in your image, male and female. Father, it's a wonderful portrait of, of marriage and sexuality as it was meant to be. Before the fall, before our sin corrupted our nature, before the curse came into being, before we were rebels, you created this institution called marriage. And you created us male and female, and you made us sexual beings in your image for your namesake and for your glory to produce children that would go all over the world to extend your dominion over your creation. What a wonderful plan you have set in place for us. Father, we would ask that you would help us to hear what we need to hear, to do what we need to do, that our eyes would be open, that our hearts would be tender and soft towards your word. Father, these are difficult subjects. These are things that are hard to speak and hard to hear because our culture is so very clouded and our sight can be limited at times. So we pray that you would cut through the clouded view of sex and sexuality that our culture um, pushes on us and that we might be able to see through the lens of scriptures, that we might be as your followers, as followers of your son, Jesus Christ, that we might be pure and holy, above reproach in this crooked generation and that we might shine as lights, that we might be tasty and preservative like salt and that we might be an impact in this world as we're different from the world and yet in it. We ask it in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. So I'd like to begin with an opening illustration. I think all of us have enjoyed uh, the warmth and the beauty of snuggling up to a toasty, nice fire. Maybe that's uh, in a fireplace, uh, like the image behind me. If you are uh, so fortunate to have one in your house, you uh, get to enjoy a fire inside your home. And on a cold day, like I think we're getting here in the next few days, um, it's it's a wonderful thing to enjoy the beauty of it and the warmth of it. And just to, to sit around a fire, it's a wonderful thing. And fire is a wonderful gift from God when used in the right context. However, as we all know, that fire, when used not in the right context, can be, it can be devastating out of context when it's ripping through miles of forest like the image we see behind us from the California fires or, uh, or, or smoldering, unchecked, destroying a home like the one we see behind us. See, fire is a wonderful gift when it's used in context. But when it's used out of context... It can be uh, devastating. I vividly recall one night, uh, as I said, we lived in South Texas, and so uh, wintertime, the the high was about, it was in the 60s. So it very rarely got cold enough for a fire. However, we did have a fireplace. And I very often asked my dad when he built the house, why did you build a fireplace? (laughs) We live in South Texas by the ocean, and it doesn't get cold. And he said, well, there are probably a handful of days in the year that it gets below 50 degrees, and then we're going to light a fire. And that's what we did. And so when it got below 50, my dad's like, it's fire weather. And so we went out and got our wood, and we stoked up the fire. And I remember on one of those five days in, in any given year um, that my dad, <clears throat> I think it was, it was the first fire of the year, and so he was excited. We were excited, right? We were going to get a fire. And uh, we get it all ready. We put the wood in, and uh, he does what he needs to do to get it started. I just wasn't an observer at the time. I was, I was smaller. And uh, we start up the fire, and we all kind of gather around to enjoy the warmth and, and uh, the beauty of it. And uh there's there's some smoke that's kind of starting to come into the house and dad's like well that's not normal that you know let's just see what happens and and the smoke grew bigger as the fire grew bigger and we came to realize uh, rather quickly um that the damper was not open and so there was a fire in the house, and smoke began filling the house, and we had a, a two-story uh, house with a, a very, kind of a, a large um, incline that led into the living room. And so <laughs> this fire and the smoke is going all into the house, all into the living room. And I can imagine, I just remember my dad just kind of running around like a wild man, trying to put it out, reaching his hands into the fire to dampen it out. It was a big mess. And it's because sex is a, uh, uh, fire is a wonderful gift. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this, Right? <laughs> I just gave it away, darn it. Fire is a wonderful gift when used in context. And the same is true with sex and sexuality. It's it's like a fire in this way. It's a good gift from our Creator, but when it's used out of context, and it means that He did not intend it for it to be used, it can be harmful, it can be devastatingly painful and damaging. And so the question that I want to pose to us this morning is, what is the context for sex? We're going to be talking about sex, sexuality, and all sorts of related issues. But this morning, we have to start at the beginning by asking the question, What is the context for sex? Because if we understand God's context for sex and sexuality, sexual expression, if we understand how God created it, then we can practice it in our lives, and then we can also understand why he says certain things are out of bounds or not within his grand design. It's because it's not best for us. It's not how he created it for us to be. The Bible unequivocally says that marriage is the only context for sex. Sex. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We must first look at what how the Bible defines and describes marriage because sex is the only context, marriage is the only context for sex. And so we have to define and look what does the Bible have to say about marriage? And then we can evaluate other sexual behavior in light of the context that God created for it to be. What's really interesting, if you read through your New Testament, you'll find out that both Jesus, Peter, And Paul and other New Testament writers, when they address ethical and moral and sexual issues, whether it be, uh, well, we can go into some of the things, but whatever it may be, when Jesus or Paul talks about things related to marriage or things related to sex and sexuality, what they always do, what they almost always do is they go back to Genesis 1 and 2 whenever they're going to say, this is right or this is wrong, this is God's best for you, this is God's intent for you in this area of sexuality, what they always do is they anchor their teachings in the Old Testament. And they anchor their teachings in God's creation of the first marriage, Adam and Eve, the context for sex. They always go back there. And so I think it would be wise then for us to understand, if we want to grasp the context for sex— and if we want to grasp what marriage is, well, then we need to also go back to the first example. Go back to Adam and Eve, which is what we read in Genesis 2, verses 21 through 24. Specifically, I want us to focus our attention now for the next few minutes on Genesis two 24. Let's read it together. If you have your Bibles, hopefully it's on the screen. Let's read it together. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. This is the verse. This is the verse that Jesus goes back to. This is the verse that Paul and that Peter and the rest of the New Testament writers, this is the verse that they go back to when they talk about sexuality, sex, sexual ethics. They anchor it in their understanding of the context of sex, which is marriage. And so if you're taking notes, which I hope you are, There's six words that I want you to write down. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yes, six words. Marriage, as defined in Genesis chapters one and two, specifically in Genesis two twenty four, is has a a six fold definition. So write these down, and then we're going to work our way through them. Here in Genesis two twenty four, I think we see, and, and other places, but mostly here, we see that marriage is defined as a number one, covenantal we'll define that in a second, a covenantal, number two, a sexual, number three, a procreative, number four, a heterosexual, number five, a monogamous, and number six, a symbolic union. So, covenantal, sexual, procreative, heterosexual, monogamous, symbolic union. That's I think, how the Bible describes what marriage is intended to be. Did you get all that? Okay, we can go home. No, just kidding. We're going to flesh it out, okay? And so six things from Genesis 1, Genesis 2, 24. And the first one is that marriage is a covenant. I just simply use the word covenantal because it, it, it sounds good, but it's a covenant. What we see from Genesis 1 and 2 and other places is that marriage is described as a covenant. Notice at the very beginning of verse 24. Here's the process. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, so there is a forsaking by the husband-to-be of his former primary allegiance, that is his mom and his dad, his parents. He forsakes allegiance to that primary relationship to cleave or to be united to, depending upon your translation. I think a, a literal translation is to clean, My translation here in the NIV says, to be united to. So he forsakes his parents as the primary allegiance, and he begins another relationship that will then be the primary relationship in his life. It will be the relationship to his wife. He is united to her. He literally, the Hebrew text says, he clings to his wife. what's interesting here is that when you read throughout the Old Testament, this language of clinging to someone or to something, is actually language used of two people in a covenant. So, in the Old Testament, we have uh, God's old covenant people, the nation of Israel, and God made a covenant, an agreement with them. It's called the Mosaic Law. We get it in the Old Testament, right? And in that agreement, when the nation of Israel obeyed the law, when they pursued obedience to God— in several places, and I can read them to you here in a second. In several places, the Bible says that they were clinging to the, the law, that they were clinging to God. It's, a, it's, a, it's language used to describe covenant obedience. It's in Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 11, and chapter 30, if you want the references. But it's, it's, it's language used of a covenant. And so when we see that the man leaves his mom and dad and pursues being united to or clinging to his wife, the Bible is indicating, it's hinting to us, something about the nature of marriage. It's telling us something about the nature of this new primary relationship between husband and wife, and that is, it is a covenant. It's covenantal in nature. Now, while Genesis 1 and 2 doesn't explicitly use the Old Testament term for covenant to talk about marriage, Two other places do. And so it's on the screen. Read it with me. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Use the word covenant to speak of marriage. Verse 16. Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, verse 17, who has left. Now notice what she has done here. Who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the what? The covenant and ignored the covenant she made before God. And so here, clearly, we see marriage between a husband and a wife, the vows that this woman took to be faithful to her husbands. She is breaking because it was a covenant that she made. Also, Malachi chapter 2, verse 14 says this, You ask why? That is, why, or or is the nation being judged? You ask why, Malachi says. It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage, what? Covenant. The wife of your marriage covenant. And so while Genesis chapter 2 uses covenantal language, To describe marriage as a covenant, in these two places, very clearly, we see that the nature of marriage is covenantal. It is a covenantal agreement. Now, what does that mean, and why does it matter? We're going to spend a little bit of time here and then go faster through the other elements. Why does it matter that we see, if we're married, or if we're going to be married, our marriage or our future marriage as a covenant rather than a contract? Why does it matter I think treating marriage as a covenant is very different than treating marriage as a contract. There's a man by the name of uh, Dr. Fred Lowry, and he did an interview with Family Life Today. You may be familiar with Family Life, a wonderful organization. And he did an interview with them, and I would like to read to you a part of what he said in that interview because he shares about the differences between seeing marriage as a, as a covenant and seeing marriage as a contract. This is what he says, and I quote him. Society views marriage as a social contract that is based on self-gratification, a commitment based on convenience in a terminal contract. For example, it's easier in the United States to walk away from a marriage than from a contract to buy a used car. Contract is about legalism and leverage. Covenant is about love and loyalty. Contract is as long as we both shall love. Covenant is as long as we both shall live. A contract calls for the signing of names. A covenant calls for the binding of hearts. Is your marriage based on contract or covenant, he asks. Here are some contrasting attitudes, he says, between a marriage that is a covenant marriage or a marriage that is a contract marriage. He says, first of all, a contract marriage says this, you had better do it. Where a covenant marriage says, how may I serve you? A contract says, what do I get? A covenant asks, what can I give? A contract asks, what will it take? A covenant says, whatever it takes. A contract says, it's not my responsibility. A covenant says, I'm happy to do it. A contract says, it's not my fault. To where a covenant says, I accept responsibility. A contract says, I'll meet you halfway. A covenant says, I will give you 100%. A contract says, I'll be faithful for now. And a covenant says, I will be faithful forever. A contract says, I'm suspicious. A covenant says, I'm trusting. A contract says, I have to. While a covenant says, I want to. A contract says, it's a deal. Where a covenant says, it's a relationship. And so, if you're married... I want to ask you the question, how do you view marriage? If you're not married, and you might be married at some point, I want to ask you to think, how might you view your marriage? Do you view it in terms of contract, or do you view it in terms of covenant? The first descriptor that I would use to define and describe marriage from Genesis 1 is that it is a covenant. Number two, not only is it covenantal, but it's a sexual union. Notice, the result of cleaving, of leaving and of cleaving is what? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. They will become one flesh. And so the end result of this is a sense that the couple is one. They are united. They are one in their flesh. Now, certainly we know, that this does describe a sexual union. In 1 Corinthians 6, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, Paul is describing and he's talking to the church about a man who is having a relationship with a harlot, and he uses this very language to describe their sexual union. He says that he is one with her in body. He literally quotes Genesis 2.24, and he says, when you, Christian, are having sex with someone outside of your marriage, you are one with that person. So one flesh certainly describes sexual union. I think it describes more than a sexual union. I think it describes more than that, but it's certainly not less than that. One commentator by the name of Hayes, he speaks to the union created in the act of sexual intimacy. Notice what he says. It's powerful. The whole argument, talking about what Paul is saying here in the context of 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 adultery, right? He says, The whole argument presupposed that sexual intercourse cannot be understood merely as a momentary act that satisfies a transient, natural urge. Instead, Instead, it creates a mysterious but real and enduring union between a man and a woman. What he is saying in simple terms is that there's no such thing as casual sex. He's saying there's no such thing as casual sex. There's no such thing as having intercourse without any kind of union taking place. I want to share with you just briefly uh, a story about a, a young man, well, he's not a young man anymore, but a, a young man that I went to college with, and he was, he was my roommate just for a summer. His name was Spencer Barfus. Great name, but that was his name, Spencer Barfus. And he was a senior when I was a, a sophomore, and I was transitioning uh, from living on campus to living out, off campus, and I needed a place to stay just for the summer. Got, got con- connected with this guy, Spencer, through the church that I went to. And so it was uh, four guys and we were all Christians and we all went to the same church. And Spencer was the kind of elder statesman. And I didn't really know him. It was just a summer deal. I just needed a place to stay. I knew these guys were Christians, so I was going to live with them. And of course, during that summer, I got to know all of my roommates, but in particular, Spencer. Uh, He was a bit older than me. And to make a a long story short, he had become a Christian while he was at college there at Texas A&M. And before he became a Christian, let's just say he lived a rather... um, a ladies' man kind of a life, okay? Uh, he, he liked the ladies, and they liked him, okay? He was a good-looking man. He was an athlete. Uh, he was about 6'3", and 220, and very strong, and muscular, and good-looking, everything that, you know, a woman would be attracted to. He was a, a star football player at his high school. In fact, he had been offered a scholarship to play football at Texas A&M. And regardless of whether you think the Aggies are good or not, that's a big deal, right, to get a scholarship to play at A&M. It is. It's a big deal. Trust me. Big deal. So, he's, he's a wonderful athlete. He was full of life and uh, became a Christian, uh, was witnessed to on campus, and became a Christian and changed his life, to make a long story short. Um, it was just really interesting because we were talking about sexuality one night, and he began to share his story, not, not in detail, um, but uh, and not about every particular encounter that he had, but he shared with us his, his, his life of, of sexual sin, and... Uh, Not with shame, he had been forgiven by Christ. He was a new person. It was not a shame-filled conversation. But he wanted us to know, those of us who were younger, uh, about what it was like to have this happen, to become one flesh with multiple, multiple, multiple people. And he described what that was like and how he felt like he was a part of each of them and they were a part of him and how he could not get that out of his head, even though he was a Christian. And so it was a learning experience for us. And this is what Paul is saying. Marriage is covenantal, but it's it's a sexual union. And that's why God created sex for marriage because it creates this one flesh Relationship. It's covenantal. It's sexual. Number three, it's procreative. Now, we don't explicitly see this in Genesis 2, but we do see it explicit in Genesis 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn back one chapter to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. Genesis, Genesis 1 is the first account of creation, Genesis 2 is the second account. And in Genesis 1, and they're complementary, by the way, Genesis 1 describes God creating male and female in the first marriage in the intent of procreation. Directly tied to sexual union in marriage is one of the purposes of marriage, which is procreation, having kids, as we see in Genesis one let Let's read that together. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so God creates this marriage, this First perfect marriage, Adam and Eve. And what does he say? He blessed them and he said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with human beings. Here, God commands them to procreate as a means of extending his rule in the world, right? So it's not just having kids for having kids' sake. He wants to extend his rule over his created world through procreation, through the institution of marriage. So before the fall, let's just summarize, before the fall, it seems like it was God's creational intent that marriage produced children. And what's interesting is that we see that this command that God gives to other couples to create and to multiply and to fill the earth continues even after the fall. So we see that similar language with Noah in Genesis 8 and with Jacob in Genesis 35 indicating, in my opinion, that this is an enduring creational norm. So marriage is covenantal, it's, it's a sexual union, but it's also a, a procreative union. This, I think, flies in the face increasingly with how our culture views both marriage and children. Increasingly, I hear of marriages of, uh, of a man and a woman that uh, are choosing not to, have, not to have kids, and I'm sure they have the reasons. But it's interesting because oftentimes, I think, kids are seen in our culture as merely added expenses. They're just seen as nuisances or yet one more responsibility, one more mouth to feed, one more kid to to raise, right? And yet what we see in Genesis is that it's having children is one of the avenues that God uses to extend his kingdom in this world. What better way to make disciples than with your very kids that you live with and they see you and you see them and you teach them and you make disciples of your kids. Now, we make disciples of people other than our kids, absolutely. But here we see that marriage as a procreative element is for the making of disciples. And so I want to ask you, how do you see your kids? How do you view them? Do you see them as just added expenses? Just Let's just get through these 18 plus years, okay, and then we're free, right? Or... And there's truth to that. <laughs> or do you see them like uh, the psalmist, uh, the proverb said, right? They're, they're like arrows to, in the hands of a warrior, right? They're meant to penetrate and to be useful in the world. So marriage is covenantal, it's sexual, it's procreative. Number four, another observation is that marriage, by definition, is, is heterosexual, It's heterosexual. Notice again, look again at Genesis 2, verse 24. It's a simple but important observation that we can make from this text, getting back to verse 14, is that God defines marriage as a union of a male and a female. Notice, for this reason, a man. Very specific. He leaves his mother and his father, and he's united to his wife. There are genders here. It's, it's male and female. We, we, we learn in Genesis 1 that God created humanity, both male and female, and now his intent for marriage, his very definition of marriage, is that males and females come together in heterosexual union to form marriage, which Genesis clearly teaches along with Jesus, along with the apostles. I'm sure you well know by now that the definition of marriage is hotly debated. It's a very hot-button issue in our culture. It's undeniable. If you read the newspaper, if you look on the internet, if you watch the news at all in the past three, four, five, ten 4, 10 decades, really, you know that, that the definition of marriage, how our culture, both legally and, and just culturally, how we see and define marriage, it's a huge deal. In our country today, some 35 states, including our very own Illinois, Uh, has chosen uh, one way or another to redefine marriage for same-sex marriage. So 35 of the 50-plus states uh, define marriage differently than how we see in Genesis. And so what this is, is that the church, not just this church, the universal church of Jesus Christ must face this issue. We must decide whether we will go with the culture and our definition of marriage or we must decide whether we'll go with God. And my suggestion is, is that we go with God in that. So marriage is covenantal, sexual, procreative. It's a, it's a heterosexual union, number five. And this may be a given in our culture. But in other cultures, it's not a given at all. Five, marriage is intended to be monogamous. What does that mean? does mono means what? One, right? So that means marriage is supposed to be between one person and another. Two people, monogamous, being married to one person. Notice, for this reason, a man. That's in the singular. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, which is also in the singular. It reveals a simple yet important observation that marriage in God's eyes is meant to be between one man and and one woman. What we find out is when you read in the New Testament on the lips of Jesus and the other apostles, when they quote this verse this is, this is important when they quote Genesis 2:24, they will be united to in this phrase, "They will become one flesh." They don't quote the Hebrew Old Testament. They quote the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which reads this way: "The two shall become one flesh." notice the difference? The, the Hebrew says this, and they will become one flesh, which of course you would think is the man and the wife, but the Greek makes it even more clear, and Jesus quotes it. He says, the two shall become one flesh, which, which just affirms what we see from Genesis, is that marriage is meant to be monogamous. Now that probably doesn't apply to any of you. In fact, if it does apply directly to you, Come talk to me immediately following the service, okay? Um, I don't think any of you have multiple husbands or wives. Um, And while polygamy is illegal in all 50 of the great states uh, of the United States of America, what's interesting is that polygamy seems to be, here in the States, seems to be, in my opinion, gaining a sympathetic ear, gaining what I would call maybe sympathetic exposure with shows like the two that I want to show you here, uh, HBO's Big Love, and then you're probably familiar with the second one, TLC's Sister Wives. Um, I don't, I've never watched these shows before, so I can't speak personally to them. In fact, we can move on from that. But um, what's interesting is that I think our culture is becoming more sympathetic with these kind of shows to the idea that maybe marriage is not just between one man and one woman, or one person and another, that maybe polygamy is in play. It's becoming a popular topic both among theological and uh, uh, it's becoming a a popular topic among theologians as well as sociologists, both conservative and liberal on both sides of the aisle. It's very interesting because you, I've read I read articles this week from people, Christians, non Christians, conservatives, liberals, all sorts of the spectrum, and many of them say, "I wonder if the next step in the redefining of marriage in our culture." will be to include polygamy. There are some interesting things out there. So all I have to say about that is stay tuned, and we'll see what happens. But the Bible says marriage is covenantal, it's sexual, it's procreative, it's heterosexual, it's meant to be monogamous. And number six, it's symbolic. It's symbolic. If you will turn with me to one final passage in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter five, we have to go there to see that marriage is a symbolic union. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32 is where we're going to look, but I encourage you to read the entire section there in Ephesians 5, because there in Ephesians 5, starting in about verse 21, verse 22, Paul gives instructions both to husbands and to wives as to how the marriage relationship is supposed to work. He essentially says, wives, submit to your husbands because that's what the church does to Jesus Christ. He says, husbands, love your wife to the point of dying for them because that's what Jesus did for his bride. And he uses this symbolic analogy that Jesus is like a husband. He loves his bride, his church, so much that he will do anything for her. He will even give his own life for her. And he says, wives, you are to submit and respect and follow the leadership of this kind of a husband like in the marriage relationship because Jesus, the ch- what we, as, the, as a church, we follow Jesus. We submit to him. We respect him. And he says, wives, that's how you are to relate to your husbands. And then he says this. He kind of sums it up in verse 32. He says, this is a profound mystery. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So he spent all of this time on marriage. And then he says, this is a mystery. Yeah, thanks, Paul. We it is mysterious, absolutely. This is a profound, a profound mystery, but I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. And so marriage, sixthly, is a symbolic union. Denny Burke, in a little book that is wonderful that I will highly recommend to you, Uh, called The Meaning of Sex, says this. He explains how marriage is a symbolic union. He says this, God did not create marriage as an end unto itself. Hear that? We all need that in our marriages. God did not create marriage as an end unto itself. It exists not to tell its own story, but to tell the story of Jesus' marriage to his church. The great mystery is that from the very beginning, God intended marriage to be a depiction of the gospel. Marriage exists to manifest the glory of Christ's redemptive love for his bride. Thus, each and every marriage, including mine and yours and maybe your future one, is supposed to be an enacted parable of the gospel. Isn't that good? Marriage is supposed to be an enacted parable of the gospel. Husbands are to love their brides in such a way that people can see Christ's love for his church. Wives are to submit to their husbands in such a way that the world can see the loveliness of Christ reflected in the obedience of his bride. In this way, he sums up by saying, in this way, God intends marriage to symbolize the gospel. And so, if you're married, the question is, what story is your marriage telling? Husbands, what story are you telling in leading and loving and dying for your wife? Wives, what story are you telling by submitting and following and respecting? Can others see the gospel in my marriage and in your marriage? I hope so, because marriage is a symbolic union. So, Hopefully we flesh this out. How does God's intent, his creational design, what what is marriage? It's covenantal. It's sexual. It's procreative. It's heterosexual, monogamous, and sixthly, it's symbolic. I want to close our time by giving you a short preview. So if we go to the next slide, here is where I intend for this series to go. Please don't hold me to it if I change the order or the subject a little bit, please give me grace. Still working through it. But here is where I intend for this to go. Part two, hopefully we'll cover the subject of why sex, the purposes of sex. Did you know that there are purposes biblically to sex? Well, there are, and we're going to talk about it next week. Number three, part three, bad sex. That is sex out of context. If marriage is the context for sex, then the Bible, by definition, says that there is such a thing as bad sex. Number four, singleness. We can't talk about a life... Uh, and sex without talking about life without sex, which is how the Bible describes singleness, and so much more. Maybe, if we're lucky, Youth Pastor Gary will do that one for us. We'll see. I'm working on it. Number five, divorce, union severed. What happens when the covenant, for many biblical reasons and some unbiblical reasons, are severed? Part six, childless sex, family planning. There are implications for family planning, From the Bible. We're going to talk about that, Lord willing. Part six, gender blender, gender differences and challenges. Are you different than your husband and wife? Are you different? Husband, are you different than your wife? I think you are. We're going to talk about some of those. Part eight, we'll cover homosexuality to wrap it up. That's where we're going, Lord willing. Pray for me, and let's pray now. Father, thank you for this time that we can look into your word to see what you have to say about issues that relate and affect all of us. Father, you've made each of us male or female, and you've made us sexual beings, made in your image for your glory and for our good. And yet, we are fallen, sinful creatures, and we take a a, a good gift like sex and sexuality, and we distort it, and we hurt ourselves, and we hurt others in the process. And so, help us. Help us, we pray, to understand your word, to understand your will for our life, for our good, and for our joy because it is a joy to be obedient to you in every area of life as followers of your son. If there's, Father, I pray, if there's a man or a woman, a young lady or a young man, a child, and they've not placed their faith in Jesus, that obedience to you is tedious and not joyful. It's because they don't know you. They don't have a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. His perfect life for their imperfect life. his sinless, substitutionary death and resurrection in place of their sin, taking upon himself their very sin and rising to defeat death, to give them the hope of eternal life forever and the assurance that they themselves can be raised to a new kind of life through faith and through faith alone by your grace. May they turn to Christ now, we pray. Father, give us help as we look into these issues. We pray in the name of Jesus and God's people said, Amen. amen." Guys, thanks for coming. See you next week.